Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to Mo Forecast, a podcast series where experts from Morrison and Forrester make predictions about enforcement and policy trends in the upcoming Biden administration. Today, we'll be discussing the U.S. Attorney's Offices. I'm your host, James Kukios, co-head of MoFo's Securities Litigation, Enforcement, and White Collar Practice Group. I'm pleased to be speaking today with Christine Wong and Josh Hill. Christine and Josh are both former federal prosecutors and members of MoFo's Investigations and White Collar Defense Group. They represent companies and individuals in government enforcement actions. Before we get into your predictions for the future, let's set the stage for the current context. Josh, what were the enforcement priorities and trends of the U.S. Attorney's offices during the Trump administration? Thanks, James. You know, when, when thinking about the enforcement priorities and trends under the Trump administration, really no unifying theme emerges. Uh, other than the Global China Initiative, which Christine will discuss in a moment, it was difficult to pinpoint a single trend from the Trump DOJ. In fact, all of the oxygen in the room was consumed by prosecutions involving members of the Trump administration or associates. If you think about Bob Mueller's investigation, the prosecutions of Michael Flynn, Michael Cohen, Roger Stone, and Bob Manafort, those are going to be the cases people will remember from the Trump DOJ years. That's not to say that the Trump DOJ was not busy and that the U.S. attorney's offices were not busy. And in fact, the numbers bear that out. If you compare 2019, uh, the number of cases filed in the United States attorney's offices were almost 70,000 cases. And if you compare that to 2015 under the Obama administration, that number was about 55,000 cases. Now, Immigration cases alone account for about 10,000 cases in that difference. Uh, and the other balance can be traced to more active casework in the prosecution of violent crimes and drug offenses. Let's talk for a moment about white collar prosecutions. And the conventional wisdom is that under a GOP administration, white collar prosecution is less of a priority than it is under a Democratic administration. And the numbers seem to bear that out when you compare the Trump administration to the Obama administration. So under Trump in 2019, there were about 4,500 prosecutions classified as white collar crime as compared to 5,200 in 2015 under Obama. At the beginning of the Trump administration, what we saw is the U.S. attorney's offices benefiting from the pipeline that had been established under the Obama administration, and they were able to work up and proceed with cases that had already been started. But as those cases began to play themselves out, what we saw in the sort of last years of the Trump administration was a, was a real decline in white-collar prosecutions. The one headlining Trump DOJ priority, as, as Josh referenced, is the very descriptively named China Initiative, which was launched in November of 2018. And the background, as it was explained by the DOJ when it launched this initiative, is that about 80% of all economic espionage prosecutions 
brought by the DOJ allege conduct that would benefit the Chinese state. And there is some connection to China in around 60% of all trade secret cases. And so the DOJ characterized this concern as a Chinese national security threat. So not surprisingly, the initiative is led by the National Security Division. And these types of cases obviously involve corporate trade secret theft, hacking, economic espionage. And the cases involved a range of industries, including the energy sector. In particular, there was an oil and gas manufacturer, a petroleum company, the, the healthcare industry. There was a case involving research materials from a children's hospital, semiconductors, and telecommunications, most notably in the, in the big Huawei case. There are also cases that involve researchers and labs and universities that are allegedly involved in transferring technology to China. And examples of the institutions affected include Harvard, UCLA, Emory University, Los Alamos National Laboratory, and even NASA. And while most of these cases involve allegations of actual or attempted transfer of intellectual property, some of them simply involve false statements that relate to attempts to conceal connections to the Chinese government. For example, failures to report foreign income from Chinese universities on U.S. tax forms, failure to disclose connections to China's Thousand Talents Plan in a federal grant application, or even a failure to disclose connections to the Chinese military in a visa application. And this China initiative very much dovetailed with the Trump administration's hardline stance on China. And it'll be very interesting to see if this work continues under the new administration. At the very least, I might expect to see a different branding for these types of cases, as they are very much associated with the Trump administration. Thanks, Christine. Josh, what are your predictions about enforcement priorities and trends that the U.S. attorney's offices will follow under the new administration? You know, first, we, we thought it would be interesting to our listeners to spend just a moment talking about the, the mechanics of the transition within the U.S. attorney offices around the country. There, there is this thought that upon uh, President-elect Biden's swearing in that all U.S. attorneys will be asked to resign because this is the beginning of a new administration, but that doesn't always happen. And to be sure, uh, some will resign, but there might be some holdovers as well. Uh, in recent history, on this matter varies. President Obama did not immediately seek the resignation of holdover U.S. attorneys, but proceeded to nominate replacement U.S. attorneys at a very deliberate pace. In contrast, uh, in March 2017, so just two months after President Trump swearing in, he ordered all holdover U.S. attorneys to resign. Uh, so, so what will happen, and for those listeners who may have cases that are now pending in the U.S. Attorney's offices around the country, uh, there are roughly two paths for a replacement U.S. attorney. Uh, the first is if the current U.S. attorney resigns, uh, the first assistant U.S. attorney automatically becomes the acting U.S. attorney for that district. And that person can serve for a maximum of 210 days. Uh, and that is commonly seen during the transition period from an old administration to a new administration. But there is another way in which an acting U.S. attorney can take office. And that is the attorney general can appoint an acting U.S. attorney 
in a district, uh, and that appointment lasts for 120 days. And if there is no Senate-confirmed replacement for that district, then the federal district court in the district can appoint the U.S. attorney. So why does that matter this year, James, with the transition from uh, President Trump to the President uh, Biden-Harris administration? And I think it comes down to the Senate. We may reach a point where the president-elect Biden seeks to nominate replacement U.S. attorneys, but those U.S. attorneys are not confirmed by a GOP-controlled Senate. Uh, So the lesson here is if we find ourselves in that situation is get to know your your local first assistant U.S. attorney who might very well find themselves uh, in that seat. So moving to the question of what are the programmatic priorities that we would expect under um, U.S. attorney's offices operating under the Biden administration? Well, Democratic administrations are generally associated with more aggressive enforcement of financial and corporate fraud. And we certainly don't expect it to be any different with the Biden-Harris administration. And particularly in this challenging economic environment that we're in, we can expect that individuals may feel the need to take advantage of loopholes or opportunities to commit fraud. For example, we've already seen a number of fraud cases related to the Paycheck Protection Program, and we would expect that to continue. But generally speaking, we see increased examples of accounting malfeasance, whether it's channel stuffing, other creative accounting methods to bolster financial results. And the DOJ doesn't turn a blind eye simply because people have excuses for bad behavior, meaning that there are hard economic times. Now, we also expect there to be a renewed interest in public corruption investigations. President-elect Biden has been very vocal about wanting to ensure transparency in government, and his campaign materials stated that the DOJ would prioritize the integrity of the department and other executive branch agencies by investigating, prosecuting, and preventing government-related misconduct. So it doesn't require sophisticated soothsayer skills to predict an increase in public corruption cases. Interestingly, there had been a significant decline in public corruption cases under the Trump administration. From 2012 to 2016, the number of public corruption cases filed each year ranged from the low end of 418 cases to the high of 549. So this is under the Obama administration. Between 2017 and 2019, that number ranged from the low end of 381 cases to the high of 411. And 411 being the high under the Trump administration was actually lower than the low end of public corruption cases brought during the prior four years. Now, as we all know, these types of investigations take a lot of time. They tend to be longer drawn out investigations, and there may be fewer such cases in the pipeline. So it may take a bit of time before we see actual filed cases in this area, but I think we can expect to see an increase in investigations in short order. You know, certainly, Christine, another area that folks would expect to see a renewed push in the Biden administration is an effort to reinvigorate the Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice. Uh, We would expect this to include an increased focus on on police misconduct cases, investigation of systemic abuses as a part of that. Uh, If we compare investigations of police departments and systemic uh, abuses occurring in police departments, 
There were 25 such investigations under the Obama administration and just one under the Trump administration. Uh, so we would expect a sea change uh, in the area of civil rights prosecutions. Another area in which we should expect increased emphasis from in a Biden Department of Justice and Biden U.S. Attorney's offices would be in the area of healthcare fraud. So in the last year of the Obama-Biden administration, the DOJ announced $3.7 billion in settlements under False Claims Act cases, the majority of which involved healthcare fraud. In contrast, in January of this year, the Trump DOJ announced $3 billion in settlements for that fiscal year. Now, that's a significant decline, not even taking into account inflation to go from $3.7 billion to $3 billion. So in the, in the context of healthcare fraud, what might we see? Uh, I would expect a renewed emphasis on the anti-kickback statute. This is the law that prohibits transactions that are intended to induce services that are ultimately reimbursed by the federal healthcare program, such as Medicare or TRICARE for veterans. And as an example, just uh, several weeks ago, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services issued an alert focused on fraud in connection with pharmaceutical speaker programs. So it seems that even now, there is a renewed focus on healthcare fraud within the DOJ and other agencies within the government. Now, there's an intersection of healthcare fraud and False Claims Act uh, that might be very interesting and, and certainly vigorously pursued in the Biden administration. And that comes in light of the billions of dollars of government procurement associated with the current ongoing fight against the coronavirus pandemic. So when we think about the masks, the ventilators, the PPE, uh, the other medical equipment all sourced to aid in this fight against the pandemic and think about uh, the potential wrongdoers and potential fraud that could be associated with uh, that level of government spend. I would expect the Biden administration to investigate possible criminal and civil fraud associated with those programs. Thanks both for those excellent predictions of where the U.S. Attorney's offices might go under a Biden administration. And when we consider those trends, Christine, what is some advice you can give to companies for what they can do to prepare for enforcement in the local U.S. Attorney's offices going forward? Given what we anticipate to be a significant interest in, in public corruption, and that's broadly speaking, you know, including the sorts of um, federal program fraud that, that Josh just described, companies with significant touch points to the government, whether it's as a contractor, a grant recipient, a permit holder, really should conduct a review of their compliance programs and make sure that they're adequately addressing the risks. And this might start with doing a risk assessment to understand all their government touch points. And at the corporate level, it might be easy to overlook the local government touch points, and they may be related to what are seemingly minor issues like building permits, permits for operations, but it's those details that can often trip up uh, companies in, in an outsized way. And even with the larger government relationships, you know, whether the government's a customer or a regulator, it's worth making sure that you know who are the significant government customers and what efforts are being made to expand those relationships. And on the regulatory side, making sure that as a company, you understand who is responsible for those relationships, who has those government touch points, 
and whether they're adequately trained in your policies and procedures. And that compliance program review could even be even more basic than that, looking at those actual policies that you have in place to make sure that they adequately address your risks. And those could include the gift and entertainment policies, the policies for approving charitable contributions, and then thinking about the the training um, cadence and whether it needs to be increased or refreshed so that you're capturing all the new risks that you may have learned through your, your risk assessment. And I'll add to that, Christine, that we are now in times of economic uncertainty and desperation for many people. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, for the first three years of the Trump administration, uh, the economy was good. The stock market was high. But we're now in a time where these conditions create a climate for economic crime. And so companies have to be vigilant about potential misconduct within their ranks. This can include embezzlement, bribery, accounting schemes. In addition to the compliance policies that Christine just discussed, companies should have a renewed focus on the internal audit function. Companies should have sufficient staff to audit, to document, analyze, and use the results of the company's compliance efforts. Uh, this is not only a good practice in and of itself, but is also something the government may be looking at one day if the company finds itself in the unfortunate situation of a government investigation. Thanks, Josh and Christine. Great advice. Well, this is the end of our Mo Forecast episode on enforcement and policy trends for the U.S. Attorney's offices under the upcoming Biden administration. Once again, I'm your host, James Kukios, speaking with Christine Wong and Josh Hill. If you liked today's episode, please visit the MoFo website and join us for additional installments of the Mo Forecast series, covering predictions for enforcement and policy trends in other areas of the law. Thanks for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.